What clue does Parker find in Paris that blows the case wide open? Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episode for the week is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Be sure to check it out on Tuesday. If you've enjoyed the show, please become a monthly supporter and help us keep the lights on. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month. As a thank you gesture, we'll send you a coupon code every month for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. It's a great way to pitch in and help us keep producing amazing audiobook content. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporter today. The Classic Tales Book Club is moving forward. Details are coming soon. And now, Clouds of Witness, Part 4 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. Lord Peter walked slowly, his coat collar turned up and his hat pulled over his eyes. This cinematographic episode had troubled his logical faculty. With an effort, he sorted out his ideas and arranged them in some kind of order. First item, said he. Mr. Grimethorpe, a gentleman who will stick at nothing, hefty, unamiable, inhospitable. Dominant characteristic? Jealousy of his very astonishing wife. Was at Stapley last Wednesday and Thursday buying machinery. Helpful gentleman at the gate corroborates this, by the way. So at this stage of the proceedings, one may allow it to be a sound alibi. Did not, therefore, see our mysterious friend with the sidecar, if he was there. But is disposed to think he was there, and has very little doubt about what he came for. Which raises an interesting point. Why the sidecar? Awkward thing to tour about with. Very good. But if our friend came after Mrs. G, he obviously didn't take her. Good again. Second item. Mrs. Grimethorpe. Very singular item, by Jove. He paused meditatively to reconstruct a thrilling moment. Let us at once admit that if Number 10 came for the purpose, suspected, he had every excuse for it. Well, Mrs. G goes in terror of her husband who thinks nothing of knocking her down on suspicion. I wish to God... But I've only made things worse. Only thing you can do for the wife of a brute like that is to keep away from her. Hope there won't be murder done. One's enough at a time. Where was I? Yes, well, Mrs. Grimethorpe knows something. And she knows somebody. She took me for somebody who had every reason for not coming to Grider's Hole. <laughs> Where was she, I wonder, while I was talking to Grimethorpe? She wasn't in the room. Perhaps the child warned her. No, that won't wash. I told the child who I was. Ah, wait a minute. Do I see light? She looked out of the window and saw a bloke in an aged Burberry. Number ten is a bloke in an aged Burberry. Now let's suppose for a moment she takes me for number ten. What does she do? She sensibly keeps out of the way. Can't think why I'm such a fool as to turn up. Then, 
While Grimethorpe runs out shouting for the kennel man, she nips down with her life in her hands to warn her, her, shall we say boldly, her lover, to get away. She finds it isn't her lover, but only a gaping ass of, I fear, a very coming-on disposition. New compromise in position. She tells the ass to save himself and herself by clearing out. Ass clears, not too gracefully. The next instalment of this enthralling drama will be shown in this theatre when... I'd jolly well like to know. He tramped on for some time. All the same, he retorted upon himself. All this throws no light on what number ten was doing at Riddlesdale Lodge. At the end of his walk, he had reached no conclusion. Whatever happens, he said to himself, and if it can be done without danger to her life, I must see Mrs. Grimethorpe again. Chapter 5 The Rue Saint-Honoré and the Rue de la Paix I think it was the cat, HMS Pinafore. Mr. Parker sat disconsolate in a small appartement in the Rue Saint-Honoré. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. Paris was full of a subdued but cheerful autumn sunlight, but the room faced north and was depressing with its plain dark furniture and its deserted air. It was a man's room, well appointed after the manner of a discreet club, a room that kept its dead owner's counsel imperturbably. Two large saddlebag chairs in crimson leather stood by the cold hearth. On the mantelpiece was a bronze clock, flanked by two polished German shells, a stone tobacco jar, and an oriental brass bowl containing a long cold pipe. There were several excellent engravings in narrow pear-wood frames, and the portrait and oils of a rather florid lady of the period of Charles II. The window curtains were crimson, and the floor covered with a solid turkey carpet. Opposite the fireplace stood a tall mahogany bookcase with glass doors, containing a number of English and French classics, a large collection of books on history and international politics, various French novels, a number of works on military and sporting subjects, and a famous French edition of the Decameron with the additional plates. Under the window stood a large bureau. Parker shook his head, took out a sheet of paper, and began to write a report. He had breakfasted on coffee and rolls at seven. He had made an exhaustive search of the flat. He had interviewed the concierge, the manager of the Crédit Lyonnais, and the prefect of police for the courtier and the result was very poor indeed. Information obtained from Captain Cathcart's papers. Before the war, Dennis Cathcart had undoubtedly been a rich man. He had considerable investments in Russia and Germany, and a large share in a prosperous vineyard in Champagne. After coming into his property at the age of twenty-one, he had concluded his three years' residence at Cambridge, and had then travelled a good deal, visiting persons of importance in various countries, and apparently studying with a view of a diplomatic career. During the period from 1913 to 1918, the story told by the books became intensely interesting, baffling, and depressing. At the outbreak of the war, he had taken a commission in the 15th Blankshires. With the help of the checkbook, Parker reconstructed the whole economic life of a young British officer. Clothes, horses, equipment, travelling. Wine and dinners when on leave, bridge debts, rent of the flat in the Rue Saint-Honoré, 
club subscriptions and whatnot. This outlay was strictly moderate and proportioned to his income. Receipted bills, neatly docketed, occupied one drawer of the bureau, and a careful comparison of these with the checkbook and the returned checks revealed no discrepancy. But beyond these, there appeared to have been another heavy drain upon Cathcart's resources. Beginning in 1913, certain large checks, payable to self, appeared regularly at every quarter, and sometimes at shorter intervals. As to the destination of these sums, the Bureau preserved the closest discretion. There were no receipts, no memoranda of their expenditure. The great crash, which in 1914 shook the credits of the world, was mirrored in little in the passbook. The credits from Russian and German sources stopped dead. Those from the French shares slumped to a quarter of the original amount, as the tide of the war washed over the vineyards and carried the workers away. For the first year or so, there were substantial dividends from capital invested in French rent. Then came an ominous entry of 20,000 francs on the credit side of the account, and six months after, another 30,000 francs. After that, the landslide followed fast. Parker could picture those curt notes from the front, directing the sale of government securities, and the savings of the past six years whirled away in the maelstrom of rising prices and collapsing currencies. The dividends grew less and less and ceased. Then, more ominous still, came a series of debits representing the charges on renewal of promissory notes. About 1918 the situation had become acute, and several entries showed a desperate attempt to put matters straight by gambling in foreign exchanges. There were purchases, through the bank, of German marks, Russian rubles, and Romanian lay. Mr. Parker sighed sympathetically when he saw this, thinking of twelve pounds worth of these delusive specimens of the engraver's art laid up in his own desk at home. He knew them to be waste paper, yet his tidy mind could not bear the thought of destroying them. Evidently Cathcart had found marks and rubles very broken reeds. It was about this time that Cathcart's passbook began to reveal the paying in of various sums in cash, some large, some small, at irregular dates and with no particular consistency. In December 1919, there had been one of these amounting to as much as 35,000 francs. Parker, at first, supposed that these sums might represent dividends from some separate securities which Cathcart was handling for himself without passing them through the bank. He made a careful search of the room in the hope of finding either the bonds themselves or at least some memorandum concerning them. But the search was in vain, and he was forced to conclude either that Cathcart had deposited them in some secret place or that the credits in question represented some different source of income. Cathcart had apparently contrived to be demobilized almost at once, owing, no doubt, to his previous frequentation of distinguished governmental personages, and to have taken a prolonged holiday upon the Riviera. Subsequently, a visit to London coincided with the acquisition of seven hundred pounds, which, converted into francs at the then rate of exchange, made a very respectable item in the account. From that time on, the outgoings and receipts presented a similar aspect, and were more or less evenly balanced, the checks to self becoming rather larger and more frequent as time went on, while during 1921 the income from the vineyard began to show signs of recovery. 
Mr. Parker noted down all this information in detail, and leaning back in his chair, looked round the flat. He felt, not for the first time, the distaste for his profession, which cut him off from the great masculine community whose members take each other for granted and respect their privacy. He relighted his pipe, which had gone out, and proceeded with his report. Information obtained from Monsieur Turgot, the manager of the Crédit Lyonnais, confirmed the evidence of the passbook in every particular. Monsieur Cathcart had recently made all his payments in notes, usually in notes of small denominations. Once or twice he had had an overdraft, never very large, and always made up within a few months. He had, of course, suffered a diminution of income, like everybody else, but the account had never given the bank any uneasiness. At the moment it was some fourteen thousand francs on the right side. Monsieur Cathcart was always very agreeable, but not communicative. Très correct. Information obtained from the concierge. One did not see much of Monsieur Cathcart, but he was très gentil. He never failed to say bonjour, bourgeois, when he came in or out. He received visitors sometimes, gentlemen, in evening dress. One made card parties. Monsieur Bourgeois had never directed any ladies to his rooms, except once, last February, when he had given a lunch party to some ladies, très comme il faut, who brought with them his fiancée, une jolie blonde. Monsieur Cathcart used the flat as a pied-à-terre, and often he would shut it up and go away for several weeks or months. He was un jeune homme très rangé. He had never kept a valet, Madame Leblanc, the cousin of one's late wife, kept his appartement clean. Madame Leblanc was very respectable, but certainly Monsieur might have Madame Leblanc's address. Information obtained from Madame Leblanc. Monsieur Cathcart was a charming young man and very pleasant to work for, very generous and took a great interest in the family. Madame Leblanc was desolated to hear that he was dead, and on the eve of his marriage to the daughter of the English milady. Madame Leblanc had seen Mademoiselle last year when she visited Monsieur Cathcart in Paris. She considered the young lady very fortunate. Very few young men were as serious as Monsieur Cathcart, especially when they were so good-looking. Madame Leblanc had had experience of young men, and she could relate many histories if she were disposed, but none of Monsieur Cathcart. He would not always be using his rooms. He had the habit of letting her know when he would be at home, and she then went round to put the flat in order. He kept his things very tidy. He was not like English gentlemen in that respect. Madame Leblanc had known many of them, who kept their affairs sans dessous du sol. Monsieur Cathcart was always very well dressed. He was particular about his bath. He was like a woman for his toilet, the poor gentleman. And so he was dead, le pauvre garçon. Really, it had taken away Madame Leblanc's appetite. Information obtained from Monsieur the Prefect of Police. Absolutely nothing. Monsieur Cathcart had never caught the eye of the police in any way. With regard to the sums of money mentioned by Monsieur Parker, if Monsieur would give him the numbers of some of the notes, efforts would be made to trace them. Where had the money gone? Parker could think of only two destinations, an irregular establishment or a blackmailer. Certainly a handsome man like Cathcart might very well have a woman or two in his life, even without the knowledge of the concierge. Certainly a man who habitually cheated at cards, if he did cheat at cards, 
might very well have got himself into the power of somebody who knew too much. It was noteworthy that his mysterious receipts in cash began, just as his economies were exhausted. It seemed likely that they represented irregular gains from gambling, in the casinos, on the exchange, or, if Denver's story had any truth in it, from crooked play. On the whole, Parker rather inclined to the blackmailing theory. It fitted in with the rest of the business, as he and Lord Peter had reconstructed it at Riddlesdale. Two or three things, however, still puzzled Parker. Why should the blackmailer have been trailing about the Yorkshire Moors with a cycle and sidecar? Whose was the green-eyed cat? It was a valuable trinket. Had Cathcart offered it as part of his payment? That seemed somehow foolish. One could only suppose that the blackmailer had tossed it away in contempt. The cat was in Parker's possession, and it occurred to him that it might be worthwhile to get a jeweller to estimate his value. But the sidecar was a difficulty. The cat was a difficulty. And more than all, Lady Mary was a difficulty. Why had Lady Mary lied at the inquest? For that she had lied, Parker had no manner of doubt. He disbelieved the whole story of the second shot which had awakened her. What had brought her to the conservatory door at three o'clock in the morning? Whose was the suitcase, if it was a suitcase, that had lain concealed among the cactus plants? Why this prolonged nervous breakdown with no particular symptoms, which prevented Lady Mary from giving evidence before the magistrate, or answering her brother's inquiries? Could Lady Mary have been present at the interview in the shrubbery? If so, surely Whimsy and he would have found her footprints. Was she in league with the blackmailer? That was an unpleasant thought. Was she endeavouring to help her fiancé? She had an allowance of her own, a generous one, as Parker knew from the Duchess. Could she have tried to assist Cathcart with money? But in that case, why not tell all she knew? The worst about Cathcart, always supposing that card-sharping were the worst, was now a matter of public knowledge, and the man himself was dead. If she knew the truth, why did she not come forward and save her brother? And at this point he was visited by a thought even more unpleasant. If, after all, it had not been Denver, whom Mrs. Marchbanks had heard in the library, but someone else, someone who had likewise an appointment with the blackmailer, someone who was on his side as against Cathcart, who knew that there might be danger in the interview. Had he himself paid proper attention to the grass lawn between the house and the thicket? Might Thursday morning perhaps have revealed here and there a trodden blade that rain and sap had since restored to uprightness? Had Peter and he found all the footprints in the wood? Had some more trusted hand fired that shot at close quarters? Once again, whose was the green-eyed cat? Surmises and surmises, each uglier than the last, thronged into Parker's mind. He took up a photograph of Cathcart, with which Whimsy had supplied him, and looked at it long and curiously. It was a dark, handsome face. The hair was black, with a slight wave. The nose large and well-shaped. The big, dark eyes at once pleasing and arrogant. The mouth was good, though a little thick with a hint of sensuality in its close curves. The chin showed a cleft. Frankly, Parker confessed to himself, it did not attract him. 
he would have been inclined to dismiss the man as a Byronic blighter. But experience told him that this kind of face might be powerful with a woman, either for love or hatred. Coincidences usually have the air of being practical jokes on the part of Providence. Mr. Parker was shortly to be favoured, if the term is a suitable one, with a special display of this Olympian humour. As a rule, that kind of thing did not happen to him. It was more in Whimsy's line. Parker had made his way from modest beginnings to a respectable appointment in the CID, rather by a combination of hard work, shrewdness and caution, than by spectacular displays of happy guesswork or any knack for taking fortune's tide at the flood. This time, however, he was given a leading from above, and it was only part of the nature of things and men that he should have felt distinctly ungrateful for it. He finished his report, replaced everything tidily in the desk, and went round to the police station to arrange with the prefect about the keys and the fixing of the seals. It was still early evening and not too cold. He determined, therefore, to banish gloomy thoughts by a café cognac in the Bull Miche, followed by a stroll through the Paris of the shops. Being of a kindly domestic nature, indeed, he turned over in his mind the idea of buying something Parisian for his elder sister, who was unmarried, and lived a rather depressing life in Barrow in Furness. Parker knew that she would take pathetic delight in some flimsy scrap of lace underwear, which no one but herself would ever see. Mr. Parker was not the kind of man to be deterred by the difficulty of buying ladies' underwear in a foreign language. He was not very imaginative. He remembered that a learned judge had one day asked in court what a camisole was, and recollected that there had seemed to be nothing particularly embarrassing about the garment when explained. He determined that he would find a really Parisian shop and ask for a camisole. That would give him a start, and then Mademoiselle would show him other things without being asked further. Accordingly, towards six o'clock, he was strolling along the Rue de la Paix with a little carton under his arm. He had spent rather more money than he intended, but he had acquired knowledge. He knew for certain what a camisole was, and he had grasped for the first time in his life that crepe de chine had no recognisable relation to crepe, and was astonishingly expensive for its bulk. The young lady had been charming and sympathetic, and, without actually insinuating anything, had contrived to make her customer feel just a little bit of a dog. He felt that his French accent was improving. The street was crowded with people, slowly sauntering past the brilliant shop windows. Mr. Parker stopped and gazed nonchalantly over a gorgeous display of jewellery, as though hesitating between a pearl necklace, valued at 80,000 francs, and a pendant of diamonds and aquamarines set in platinum. And there, balefully winking at him from under a label inscribed Bon Fortune, hung a green-eyed cat. The cat stared at Mr. Parker, and Mr. Parker stared at the cat. It was no ordinary cat. It was a cat with a personality. Its tiny arched body sparkled with diamonds, and its platinum paws, set close together, and its erect and glittering tail were instinct in line with the sensuous delight of friction against some beloved object. Its head cocked slightly to one side, seemed to demand a titillating finger under the jaw. It was a minute work of art, by no journeyman hand. Mr. Parker fished in his pocket-book. 
He looked from the cat in his hand to the cat in the window. They were alike. They were astonishingly alike. They were identical. Mr. Parker marched into the shop. I have here, said Mr. Parker to the young man at the counter, a diamond cat which greatly resembles one which I perceive in your window. Could you have the obligingness to inform me what would be the value of such a cat? The young man replied instantly. But certainly, monsieur, the price of the cat is five thousand francs. It is, as you perceive, made of the finest materials. Moreover, it is the work of an artist. It is worth more than the market value of the stones. It is, I suppose, a mascot? Yes, monsieur. It brings great good luck, especially at cards. Many ladies buy these little objects. We have here other mascots, but all of these special design are of similar quality and price. Monsieur may rest assured that his cat is a cat of pedigree. I suppose that such cats are everywhere obtainable in Paris, said Mr. Parker nonchalantly. But no, monsieur. If you desire to match your cat, I recommend you do it quickly. Monsieur Briquet had only one score of these cats to begin with, and there are now only three left, including the one in the window. I believe that he will not make any more. To repeat a thing often is to vulgarize it. There will, of course, be other cats. I don't want another cat, said Mr. Parker, suddenly interested. Do I understand you to say that cats such as this are only sold by Monsieur Briquet? That my cat originally came from this shop? Undoubtedly, monsieur, it is one of our cats. These little animals are made by a workman of ours, a genius, who is responsible for many of our finest articles. It would, I imagine, be impossible to find out to whom this cat was originally sold. If it was sold over the counter for cash, it would be difficult. But if it was entered in our books, it might not be impossible to discover, if monsieur desired it. I do desire it very much said Parker, producing his card. I am an agent of the British police, and it is of great importance that I should know to whom this cat originally belonged. In that case, said the young man, I shall do better to inform Monsieur the proprietor. He carried away the card into the back premises, and presently emerged with a stout gentleman, whom he introduced as Monsieur Briquet. In Monsieur Briquet's private office, the books of the establishment were brought out and laid on the desk. You will understand, monsieur, said Monsieur Briquet, that I can only inform you of the names and addresses of such purchasers of these cats as have had an account sent them. It is, however, unlikely that an object of such value was paid for in cash. Still, with rich Anglo-Saxons, such an incident may occur. We need not go back further than the beginning of the year when these cats were made. He ran a podgy finger down the pages of the ledger. The first purchase was on January 19th. Mr. Parker noted various names and addresses, and at the end of half an hour, Monsieur Briquet said in a final manner, That is all, monsieur. How many names have you there? Thirteen, said Parker. And there are still three cats in stock. The original number was twenty, so that four must have been sold for cash. If monsieur wishes to verify the matter, we can consult the day-book. The search in the day-book was longer and more tiresome, but eventually the four cats were duly found to have been sold, 
one on January 31st, one on February 6th, the third on May 17th, and the last on August 9th. Mr. Parker had risen and embanked upon a long string of compliments and thanks when a sudden association of ideas and dates prompted him to hand Cathcart's photograph to Monsieur Briquet and ask whether he recognised it. Monsieur Briquet shook his head. I am sure he is not one of our regular customers, he said, and I have a very good memory for faces. I make a point of knowing anyone who has any considerable account with me, and this gentleman has not everybody's face, but we will ask my assistance. The majority of the staff failed to recognize the photograph, and Parker was on the point of putting it back in his pocketbook when a young lady, who had just finished selling an engagement ring to an obese and elderly Jew, arrived, and said without any hesitation, Mais oui, je l'ai vu, ce monsieur-là. It is the Englishman who bought a diamond cat for the jolie blonde. Mademoiselle, said Parker eagerly, I beseech you to do me the favour to remember all about it. Parfaitement, said she. It is not a face one would forget, especially when one is a woman. The gentleman bought a diamond cat and paid for it. No, I am wrong. It was the lady who bought it, and I remember now to have been surprised that she should pay like that at once in money, because ladies do not usually carry such large sums. The gentleman bought two. He bought a diamond and tortoise shell comb for the lady to wear, and then she said she must give him something pour porter bonheur, and asked me for a mascot that was good for cards. I showed her some jewels more suitable for a gentleman, but she saw these cats and fell in love with them, and said she should have a cat and nothing else. She was sure it would bring him good hands. She asked me if it was not so, and I said undoubtedly, and monsieur must be sure never to play without it, and he laughed very much, and promised always to have it upon him when he was playing. And how was she, this lady? Blonde, monsieur, and very pretty, rather tall and svelte, and very well dressed, a big hat and dark blue costume. Coyoncourt, voyons. Yes, she was a foreigner. English? I do not know. She spoke French very, very well, almost like a French person, but she had just the little suspicion of accent. What language did she speak with the gentleman? French, monsieur. You see, we were speaking together, and they both appealed to me continually, and so all the talk was in French. The gentleman spoke French en merveille. It was only by his clothes and the je ne sais quoi in his appearance that I guessed he was English. The lady spoke equally fluently, but one remarked just the accent from time to time. Of course, I went away from them once or twice to get goods from the window, and they talked then. I do not know in what language. Now, mademoiselle, can you tell me how long ago this was? Ah, mon Dieu, ça c'est plus difficile. Monsieur sait que les jours se suivent et se ressemblent. Voyons. We can see by the day-book, put in Monsieur Briquet, on what occasion a diamond comb was sold with a diamond cat. Of course, said Parker hastily. Let us go back. They went back and turned to the January volume, where they found no help, but on February 6th they read Peigne et Necaille et Diamant, Seven thousand five hundred francs. Chat on diamant, descense cinq, five thousand francs. That settles it, said Parker gloomily. Monsieur does not appear content, suggested the jeweller. 
Monsieur, said Parker, I am more grateful than I can say for your very great kindness. But I will frankly confess that, of all the twelve months in the year, I had rather it had been any other. Parker found this whole episode so annoying to his feelings that he bought two comic papers, and carrying them away to Boudet's, at the corner of the Rue Auguste Leopold, read them solemnly through over his dinner, by way of settling his mind. Then, returning to his modest hotel, he ordered a drink and sat down to compose a letter to Lord Peter. It was a slow job, and he did not appear to relish it very much. His concluding paragraph was as follows. I have put all these things down for you without any comment. You will be able to draw your own inferences as well as I can. Better, I hope, for my own are perplexing and worrying me no end. They may all be rubbish. I hope they are. I dare say something will turn up at your end to put quite a different interpretation upon the facts. But I do feel that they must be cleared up. I would offer to hand over the job, but another man might jump at conclusions even faster than I do, and make a mess of it. But of course if you say so, I will be taken suddenly ill at any moment. Let me know. If you think I'd better go on grubbing about over here, can you get hold of a photograph of Lady Mary Whimsy, and find out if possible about the diamond comb and the green-eyed cat? Also, at exactly what date Lady Mary was in Paris in February? Does she speak French as well as you do? Let me know how you are getting on. Yours ever, Charles Parker. He re-read the letter and report carefully and sealed them up. Then he wrote to his sister, did up his parcel neatly, and rang for the valet de chambre. I want this letter sent off at once, registered, he said, and the parcel is to go tomorrow as a colis postal. After which he went to bed and read himself to sleep with a commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews. Lord Peter's reply arrived by return. Dear Charles, don't worry. I don't like the look of things myself, rightfully, but I'd rather you tackled the business than anyone else. As you say, the ordinary police bloke doesn't mind whom he arrests, provided he arrests someone, and is altogether a most damnable fellow to have poking into one's affairs. I'm putting my mind to get my brother cleared, that is the first consideration, after all, and really anything else would be better than having Jerry hanged for a crime he didn't commit. Whoever did it, it's better the right person should suffer than the wrong. So go ahead. I enclose two photographs, all I can lay hands on for the moment. The one in the nursing kit is rather rotten, and the other's all smothered up in a big hat. I had a damn queer little adventure here on Wednesday, which I'll tell you about when we meet. I found a woman who obviously knows more than she ought, and a most promising ruffian, only I'm afraid he's got an alibi. Also, I've got a faint suggestion of a clue about number ten. Nothing much happened at North Allerton, except that Jerry was of course committed for trial. My mother is here, thank God, and I'm hoping she can get some sense out of Mary. But she's been worse the last two days. Mary, I mean, not my mother. Beastly sick and all that sort of thing. Dr. Thingamy, who is an ass, can't make it out. Mother says it's as clear as noonday that she'll stop it if I have patience a day or two. I made her ask about the comb and the cat. Mary denies the cat altogether, but admits to a diamond comb bought in Paris, says she bought it herself. It's in town, 
I'll get it and send it on. She says she can't remember where she bought it, has lost the bill, but it didn't cost anything like 7,500 francs. She was in Paris from February 2nd to February 20th. My chief business now is to see Lubbock and clear up a little matter concerning silver sand. The assizes will be the first week in November, in fact, the end of next week. This rushes things a bit, but it doesn't matter, because they can't try him there. Nothing will matter but the grand jury, who are bound to find a true bill on the face of it. After that, we can hang matters up as long as we like. It's going to be a deuce of a business, Parliament sitting and all. Old Biggs is fearfully perturbed under that marble outside of his. I hadn't really grasped what a fuss it was to try, Piers. It's only happened about once in every sixty years, and the procedure's about as old as Queen Elizabeth. They have to appoint a Lord High Steward for the occasion, and God knows what. They have to make it frightfully clear in the Commission that it is only for the occasion, because somewhere around Richard III's time, the Lord High Steward was such a terrifically big pot that he got to ruling the roost. So when Henry IV came to the throne, and the office came into the hands of the Crown, he jolly well kept it there, and now they only appoint a man pro tem for the coronation and shows like Jerry's. The King always pretends not to know there isn't a Lord High Steward till the time comes, and is no end surprised at having to think of somebody to take on the job. Did you know all this? I didn't. I got it out of Biggie. Cheer up. Pretend you don't know that any of these people are relations of mine. My mother sends you her kindest regards and what not, and hopes she'll see you again soon. Bunter sends something correct and respectful, I forget what. Yours in the Brotherhood of Detection, Peter Whimsey. It may as well be said at once that the evidence from the photographs was wholly inconclusive. Chapter 6 Mary Quite Contrary I am striving to take into public life what any man gets from his mother. Lady Astor On the opening day of the York Assizes, the grand jury brought in a true bill against Gerald, Duke of Denver, for murder. Gerald, Duke of Denver, being accordingly produced in the court, the judge affected to discover what, indeed, every newspaper in the country had been announcing to the world for the last fortnight, that he, being but a common or garden judge with a plebeian jury, was incompetent to try a peer of the realm. He added, however, that he would make it his business to inform the Lord Chancellor, who also, for the last fortnight, had been secretly calculating the accommodation in the Royal Gallery and choosing lords to form the select committee. Orders being taken accordingly, the noble prisoner was led away. A day or two later, in the gloom of a London afternoon, Mr. Charles Parker rang the bell of a second-floor flat at number 110 Piccadilly. The door was opened by Bunter, who informed him with a gracious smile that Lord Peter had stepped out for a few minutes, but was expecting him, and would he kindly come in and wait. We only came up this morning, added the valet and are not quite straight yet, sir, if you will excuse us. Would you feel inclined for a cup of tea? Parker accepted the offer, and sank luxuriously into a corner of the Chesterfield. After the extraordinary discomfort of French furniture, there was solace in the enervating springiness beneath him, the cushions behind his head, and Whimsy's excellent cigarettes. 
What Bunter had meant by saying that things were not quite straight yet, he could not divine. A leaping wood fire was merrily reflected in the spotless surface of the black baby grand. The mellow calf bindings of Lord Peter's rare editions glowed softly against the black and primrose walls. The vases were filled with tawny chrysanthemums. The latest editions of all the papers were on the table, as though the owner had never been absent. Over his tea, Mr. Parker drew out the photographs of Lady Mary and Dennis Cathcart from his breast pocket. He stood them up against the teapot and stared at them, looking from one to the other, as if trying to force a meaning from their faintly smirking, self-conscious gaze. He referred again to his Paris notes, ticking off various points with a pencil. "'Damn,' said Mr. Parker, gazing at Lady Mary. "'Damn, damn, damn!' The train of thought he was pursuing was an extraordinarily interesting one. Image after image, each rich in suggestion, crowded into his mind. Of course, one couldn't think properly in Paris. He was so uncomfortable and the houses were central heated. Here, where so many problems had been unravelled, there was a good fire. Cathcart had been sitting before the fire. Of course, he wanted to think out a problem. When cats sat staring into the fire, they were thinking out problems. It was odd he should not have thought of that before. When the green-eyed cat sat before the fire, one sank right down into a sort of rich, black, velvety suggestiveness, which was most important. It was luxurious to be able to think so lucidly as this, because otherwise it would be a pity to exceed the speed limit, and the black moors were reeling by so fast. But now he had really got the formula, he wouldn't forget it again. The connection was just there, close, thick, richly coherent. The glass-blower's cat is bombstable, said Mr. Parker aloud and distinctly. I'm charmed to hear it, replied Lord Peter with a friendly grin. Had a good nap, old man? I what? said Parker. Hello, what do you mean, nap? I had got hold of a most important train of thought, and you've put it out of my head. What was it? Cat, cat, cat. He groped wildly. You said the glassblower's cat is bombstable, retorted Lord Peter. It's a perfectly ripping word, but I don't know what you mean by it. Bombstable, said Mr. Parker, blushing slightly. Bomb? Oh, well, perhaps you're right. I may have dozed off. But, you know, I thought I'd just got the clue to the whole thing. I attached the greatest importance to that phrase. Even now. No, now I come to think of it, my train of thought doesn't seem quite to hold together. What a pity. I thought it was so lucid. Never mind, said Lord Peter. Just back? Crossed last night. Any news? Lots. Good? No. Parker's eyes wandered to the photographs. I don't believe it he said obstinately. I'm damned if I'm going to believe a word of it. A word of what? Of whatever it is. You'll have to believe it, Charles, as far as it goes, said his friend softly, filling his pipe with decided little digs of the fingers. I don't say, dig, that Mary, dig, shot, Cathcart, dig, dig. But she has lied, dig, again and again, dig, dig. She knows who did it. Dig. She was prepared for it. Dig. 
She's malingering and lying to keep the fellow shielded. Dig. And we shall have to make her speak. Here he struck a match and lit the pipe in a series of angry little puffs. If you can think, said Mr. Parker with some heat, that that woman, he indicated the photographs, had any hand in murdering Cathcart, I don't care what your evidence is. You... Hang it all, Whimsy, she's your own sister. Gerald is my brother, said Whimsy quietly. You don't suppose I'm exactly enjoying this business, do you? But I think we shall get along very much better if we try to keep our tempers. I'm awfully sorry, said Parker. Can't think why I said that. Rotten bad form. Beg pardon, old man. The best thing we can do, said Whimsy, is to look the evidence in the face, however ugly. I don't mind admitting that some of it's a positive gargoyle. My mother turned up at Riddlesdale on Friday. She marched upstairs at once and took possession of Mary, while I drooped about in the hall and teased the cat, and generally made a nuisance of myself, you know. Presently old Dr. Thorpe called. I went and sat on the chest on the landing. Presently the bell rings and Ellen comes upstairs. Mother and Thorpe popped out and caught her just outside Mary's room, and they jibber-jabbered a lot, and presently Mother came barging down the passage to the bathroom, with her heels tapping and her earrings simply dancing with irritation. I sneaked after him to the bathroom door, but I couldn't see anything, because they were blocking the doorway, but I heard Mother say, There now, what did I tell you? And Ellen said, Locks, your grace, who'd have thought it? And my Mother said, All I can say is, if I have to depend on you people to save me from being murdered with arsenic, or that other stuff with a name like anemones, you know what I mean, that that very attractive-looking man with a preposterous beard used to make away with his wife and mother-in-law, who was vastly the more attractive of the two, poor thing, I might be being cut up and analysed by Dr. Spilsbury now. Such a horrid, distasteful job he must have of it, poor man, and the poor little rabbits, too.' Whimsy paused for breath, and Parker laughed in spite of his anxiety. "'I won't vouch for the exact words,' said Whimsy. "'But it was to that effect. You know my mother's style. Old Thorpe tried to look dignified, but Mother ruffled up like a little hen, and said, looking beadily at him, "'In my day we called that kind of thing hysterics and naughtiness. We didn't let girls pull the wool over our eyes like that.' I suppose you call it a neurosis, or a suppressed desire, or a reflex, and coddle it. You might have let that silly child make herself really ill. You are all perfectly ridiculous, and no one more fit to take care of yourselves than a lot of babies. Not but what there are plenty of poor little things in the slums that look after whole families and show more sense than the lot of you put together. I am very angry with Mary, advertising herself in this way, and she's not to be pitied.' "'You know,' said Whimsy, "'I think there's often a great deal in what one's mother says.' "'I believe you,' said Parker. "'Well, I got hold of Mother afterwards and asked her what it was all about. "'She said Mary wouldn't tell her anything about herself or her illness, "'just asked to be let alone. "'Then Thorpe came along and talked about nervous shock, "'said he couldn't understand these fits of sickness, "'or the way Mary's temperature hopped about.' Mother listened and told him to go and see what the temperature was now, which he did, and in the middle Mother called him away to the dressing-table. But being a wily old bird, you see, she kept her eyes on the looking-glass, and nipped round just in time to catch Mary, 
stimulating the thermometer to terrific leaps on the hot water bottle. Well, I'm damned, said Parker. So was Thorpe. All Mother said was that if he wasn't too old a bird yet to be taken in by that hoary trick, he'd no business to be getting himself up as a grey-haired family practitioner. So then she asked the girl about the sick fits, when they happened and how often, and was it after meals or before and so on, and at last she got out of them that it generally happened a bit after breakfast and occasionally at other times. Mother said she couldn't make it out at first, because she'd hunted all over the room for bottles and things, till at last she asked who made the bed, thinking, you see, Mary might have hidden something under the mattress. So Ellen said she usually made it while Mary had her bath. When's that? says Mother. Just before her breakfast, bleats the girl. God forgive you all for a set of nincompoops, says my mother. Why didn't you say so before? So away they all trailed to the bathroom, and there, sitting up quietly on the bathroom shelf among the bath salts, and the elements embrocation, and the crucian feelings, and the toothbrushes and things, was the family bottle of Ipecacuana, three quarters empty. Mother said, well, I told you what she said. By the way, how do you spell Ipecacuana? Mr. Parker spelt it. Damn you, said Lord Peter. I did think I'd stumped you that time. I believe you went out and looked it up beforehand. No decent-minded person would know how to spell Ipecacuana out of his own head. Anyway, as you were saying, it's easy to see which side of the family has the detective instinct. I didn't say so. I know. Why didn't you? I think my mother's talents deserve a little acknowledgement. I said so to her, as a matter of fact, and she replied in these memorable words, My dear child, you can give it a long name if you like, but I'm an old-fashioned woman, and I call it Mother Wit, and it's so rare for a man to have it, that if he does, you write a book about him and call him Sherlock Holmes. However, apart from that, I said to Mother, in private, of course, It's all very well but I can't believe that Mary has been going to all this trouble to make herself horribly sick and frighten us all just to show off. Surely she isn't that sort. Mother looked at me steady as an owl and quoted a lot of examples of hysteria, ending up with the servant girl who threw paraffin about all over somebody's house to make them think it was haunted, and finished up that if all these newfangled doctors went out of their way to invent subconsciousness and kleptomania, and complexes and other fancy descriptions to explain away when people had done naughty things, she thought one might as well take advantage of the fact. Whimsy, said Parker, much excited. Did she mean she suspected something? My dear old chap, replied Lord Peter, whatever can be known about Mary by putting two and two together, my mother knows. I told her all we knew up to that point, and she took it all in, in her funny way, you know never answering anything directly. And then she put her head on one side and said, If Mary had listened to me and done something useful instead of that V.A.D. work, which never came to much, if you ask me, not that I have anything against V.A.D.s in a general way, but that silly woman Mary worked under was the most terrible snob on God's earth, and there were very much more sensible things which Mary might really have done well, only she was so crazy to get to London— I shall always say it was the fault of that ridiculous club. What could you expect of a place where you ate such horrible food, all packed into an underground cellar painted pink, and talking away at the tops of their voices, and never any evening dress, only Soviet jumpers and side-whiskers? Anyhow, 
I've told that silly old man what to say about it, and they'll never be able to think of a better explanation for themselves. Indeed, you know, said Peter. I think if any of them start getting inquisitive, they'll have mother down on them like a ton of bricks. What do you really think yourself? asked Parker. I haven't come yet to the unpleasantest bit of the lot, said Peter. I've only just heard it, and it did me a nasty jar, I'll admit. Yesterday I got a letter from Lubbock, saying he would like to see me, so I trotted up here and dropped in on him this morning. You remember I sent him a stain off one of Mary's skirts, which Bunter had cut out for me? I had taken a squint at it myself, and didn't like the look of it, so I sent it up to Lubbock, ex abundantia cautele, and I'm sorry to say he confirms me. It's human blood, Charles, and I'm afraid it's Cathcart's. But I've lost the thread of this a bit. Well, the skirt must have got stained the day Cathcart died, as that was the last day on which the party was out on the moors, and if it had been there earlier, Ellen would have cleaned it off. Afterwards, Mary strenuously resisted Ellen's efforts to take the skirt away, and made an amateurish effort to tidy it up herself with soap. So I think we may conclude that Mary knew the stains were there, and wanted to avoid discovery. She told Ellen that the blood was from a grouse, which must have been a deliberate untruth. Perhaps, said Parker, struggling against hope to make out a case for Lady Mary. She only said, Oh, one of those birds must have bled, or something like that. I don't believe, said Peter, that one could get a great patch of human blood on one's clothes like that, and not know what it was. She must have knelt right in it. It was three or four inches across. Parker shook his head dismally, and consoled himself by making a note. Well now, went on Peter, on Wednesday night, everybody comes in and dines and goes to bed except Cathcart, who rushes out and stays out. At 11.50, the gamekeeper, Hardraw, hears a shot which may very well have been fired in the clearing where the, well, let's say the accident, took place. The time also agrees with the medical evidence about Cathcart having already been dead three or four hours when he was examined at 4.30. Very well. At 3 a.m., Jerry comes home from somewhere or other, and finds the body. As he is bending over it, Mary arrives in the most apropos manner from the house in her coat and cap and walking shoes. Now what is her story? She says that at three o'clock she was awakened by a shot. Now nobody else heard that shot, and we have the evidence of Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson, who slept in the room next to Mary, with her window open according to her immemorial custom, that she lay broad awake from 2 a.m. till a little after 3 a.m., when the alarm was given, and heard no shot. According to Mary, the shot was loud enough to waken her on the other side of the building. It's odd, isn't it, that the person already awake should swear so positively that she heard nothing of a noise loud enough to waken a healthy young sleeper next door? And in any case, if that was the shot that killed Cathcart, he can barely have been dead when my brother found him. And again in that case... How was there time for him to be carried up from the shrubbery to the conservatory? We've been all over this ground, said Parker, with an expression of distaste. We agreed that we couldn't attach any importance to the story of the shot. I'm afraid we've got to attach a great deal of importance to it, said Lord Peter, gravely. 
Now what does Mary do? Either she thought the shot, there was no shot. I know that. But I'm examining the discrepancies of her story. She said she did not give the alarm because she thought it was probably only poachers. But if it was poachers, it would be absurd to go down and investigate. So she explains that she thought it might be burglars. Now, how does she dress to go and look for burglars? What would you or I have done? I think we would have taken a dressing gown, a stealthy kind of pair of slippers, and perhaps a poker or a stout stick. Not a pair of walking shoes, a coat, and a cap of all things. It was a wet night, mumbled Parker. My dear chap, if it's burglars you're looking for, you don't expect to go and hunt them round the garden. Your first thought is that they're getting into the house and your idea is to slip down quietly and survey them from the staircase, or behind the dining-room door, anyhow. Fancy a present-day girl, who rushes about bareheaded in all weathers, stopping to embellish herself in a cap for a burglar hunt. Damn it, old Charles, it won't wash, you know. And she walks straight off to the conservatory and comes upon the corpse, exactly as if she knew where to look for it beforehand. Parker shook his head again. Well, now, she sees Gerald stooping over Cathcart's body. What does she say? Does she ask, what's the matter? Does she ask, who it is? She exclaims, oh, God, Gerald, you've killed him. And then she says, as if on second thoughts, oh, it's Dennis. What has happened? Has there been an accident? Now, does that strike you as natural? No, but it rather suggests to me that it wasn't Cathcart she expected to see there, but somebody else. Does it? It rather sounds to me as if she was pretending not to know who it was. First, she says, you've killed him, and then recollecting that she isn't supposed to know who he is, she says, why, it's Dennis. In any case, then, if her first exclamation was genuine, she didn't expect to find the man dead. No, no, we must remember that. The death was a surprise. Very well. Then Gerald sends Mary up for help. And here's where a little bit of evidence comes in that you picked up and sent along. Do you remember what Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson said to you in the train? About the door slamming on the landing, do you mean? Yes. Now, I'll tell you something that happened to me the other morning. I was bursting out of the bathroom in my usual breezy way, when I caught myself a hell of a whack on that old chest on the landing, and the lid lifted up and shut down, plonk. And that gave me an idea. "'and I thought I'd have a squint inside. "'I got the lid up and was looking at some sheets and stuff "'that were folded up at the bottom "'when I heard a sort of gasp, "'and there was Mary, staring at me, as white as a ghost. "'She gave me a turn by Jove, "'but nothing like the turn I'd given her. "'Well, she wouldn't say anything to me and got hysterical, "'and I hauled her back to her room. "'But I'd seen something on those sheets. "'What? Silver sand. "'Silver... Do you remember those cacti in the greenhouse? And the place where somebody'd put a suitcase or something down? Yes. Well, there was a lot of silver sand scattered about. The sort people stick round some kinds of bulbs and things. And that was inside the chest, too? Yes. Wait a moment. After the noise Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson heard, Mary woke up Freddy, and then the Pettigrew Robinsons, and then what? She locked herself into her room. Yes and shortly afterwards she came down and joined the others in the conservatory. And it was at this point everybody remembered noticing that she was wearing a cap and coat and walking shoes over pyjamas and bare feet. 
You are suggesting, said Parker, that Lady Mary was already awake and dressed at three o'clock, that she went out by the conservatory door with her suitcase, expecting to meet the, the murderer of her... Damn it, Whimsy! We needn't go so far as that, said Peter. We decided that she didn't expect to find Cathcart dead. No. Well, she went, presumably, to meet somebody. Shall we say, pro tem, she went to meet number ten? Suggested Whimsy softly. I suppose we may as well say so. When she turned on the torch and saw the Duke stooping over Cathcart, she thought, By Jove, Whimsy, I was right after all. When she said you've killed him, she meant number ten. She thought it was number ten's body. Of course, cried Whimsy. I'm a fool, yes. Then she said, It's Dennis. What has happened? That's quite clear. And meanwhile, what did she do with the suitcase? I see it all now, cried Parker. When she saw that the body wasn't the body of number ten, she realized that number ten must be the murderer. So her game was to prevent anybody knowing that number ten had been there. So she shoved the suitcase behind the cacti. Then she went upstairs, she pulled it out again, and hid it in the oak chest on the landing. She couldn't take it to her room, of course, because if anybody'd heard her come upstairs, it would seem odd that she should run to her room before calling the others. Then she knocked up Arbuthnot and the Pettigrew Robinsons. She'd be in the dark, and they'd be flustered and wouldn't see exactly what she had on. Then she escaped from Mrs. P., ran into her room, took off the skirt in which she had knelt by Cathcart's side and the rest of her clothes and put on her pyjamas and the cap, which someone might have noticed, and the coat, which they must have noticed, and the shoes, which had probably left footmarks already. Then she could go down and show herself. Meanwhile, she'd concocted the burglar story for the coroner's benefit. That's about it, said Peter. I suppose she was so desperately anxious to throw us off the scent of number ten that it never occurred to her that her story was going to help implicate her brother. She realized it at the inquest, said Parker eagerly. Don't you remember how hastily she grasped at the suicide theory? And when she found that she was simply saving her, well, number ten, in order to hang her brother, she lost her head, took to her bed, and refused to give any evidence at all. Seems to me there's an extra allowance of fools in my family, said Peter gloomily. Well, what could she have done, poor girl? asked Parker. He had been growing almost cheerful again. Anyway, she's cleared, after a fashion, said Peter. But we're not out of the wood yet by a long way. Why is she hand in glove with number ten, who is at least a blackmailer, if not a murderer? How did Gerald's revolver come on the scene? And the green-eyed cat? How much did Mary know of that meeting between number ten and Dennis Cathcart? And if she was seeing and meeting the man, she might have put the revolver into his hands at any time. No, no, said Parker. Whimsy, don't think such ugly things as that. Hell, cried Peter, exploding. I'll have the truth of this beastly business if we all go to the gallows together. At this moment, Bunter entered with a telegram addressed to Whimsy. Lord Peter read as follows. Party traced London. Seen Marlebon Friday. Further information from Scotland Yard. Police Superintendent Gosling, Ripley. Good egg, cried Whimsy. Now we're getting down to it. Stay here, there's a good man, in case anything turns up. I'll run round to the yard now. 
They'll send you up dinner, and tell Bunter to give you a bottle of the Chateau Ikem. It's rather decent. So long. He leapt out of the flat, and a moment later his taxi buzzed away up Piccadilly. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Clouds of Witness, Part 4 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. If you've enjoyed this episode, please become a supporter by going to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>